Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. This episode is brought to you by Benjamin Moore and Sherwin-Williams. Welcome to the Painter Marketing Mastermind Podcast, a show created to help painting company owners build a thriving painting business that does well over $1 million in annual revenue. I'm your host, Brandon Pierpont, founder of Painter Marketing Pros and creator of the popular PCA educational series, Learn, Do, Grow, Marketing for Painters. In each episode, I'll be sharing proven tips, strategies, and processes from leading experts in the industry on how they found success in their painting business. We will be interviewing owners of the most successful painting companies in North America and learning from their experiences. In this series titled The Birth of a Giant, Brad Ellison of Ellison Painting will be discussing what it looks like to start a professionalized and profitable painting company from day one. It is a four-part series. In the first episode, Brad discussed his decision to walk away from his previous partnership and the assets he found available to him. In episode two, this episode, Brad will dive into what it looks like to launch a highly professionalized painting company from scratch. In episode three, Brad will discuss how to effectively build systems and processes that create a roadmap for future success. And in the final episode, episode four, Brad will elaborate on what it looks like to scale a painting company both in terms of mindset and concrete steps. If you want to ask Brad questions related to anything in this podcast series, you can do so in our exclusive Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast forum on Facebook. Just search for Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast forum on Facebook and request to join the group or type in the URL facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Painter Marketing Mastermind. Again, that URL is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Painter Marketing Mastermind. There you can ask Brad questions directly by tagging him with your question so you can see how anything discussed here applies to your particular painting company. Brad, thanks so much for returning for the second episode, man. Thanks for having me, Brandon. As always, pleasure to speak with you, my friend. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on with you, man. Mm-hmm. This episode is titled Rocket Man. Uh, it is all about launching a highly professionalized painting company from scratch. Most most painting companies never get there, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excited to share uh, what little knowledge I have. <laughs> So let's start. Yeah. The, the humility you, you are doing, you're knocking out of the park. I think we touched mm-hmm. on your, your revenue figures from episode one mm-hmm. past a million in the first six months of sales. It's out of control. Um, but we're also going to go down, break it down to basics here. Start from the mm-hmm. basics from, from literally filing, um, you know, letters of corporation, to everything. Let's walk through just step-by-step. Sure. And uh, full disclaimer here, like there's probably some details that I'm going to be leaving out. So I'm just going to be painting a broad picture of here's the things that I knew had to get done. Here's how I did them. And this this uh, episode is probably going to be less sexy than the one we recorded last time. Um, but this is stuff that I wish had been laid out for me. If this, if this had been laid out two or three years ago, I wouldn't even have considered buying another company. I'd be like, oh, it's actually not that difficult. And here's a step-by-step process, right? This is so, not legal advice. 
Certainly not legal advice, but if you follow these steps and you implement it in your business, by law, they you do owe me 5% of your company. <laughs> not you, Brandon, but anyone listening. So anyone, this it. is my path to financial freedom. This is it, right? Here. Passive <laughs> yeah. income. Yeah. So the the first steps, they're, they're really just like, man, here's here's the logistical steps that you need to take in order to actually have a real company. And the reality is, Brandon, you know this as well as I do, that many painting companies exist for years and years and years without doing most of these even. Uh, but my goal obviously was not to be a, you know, a quote unquote painting company, but to be a real legitimate business. And I wanted to appear as legitimate as possible from day one. So the first thing I did is I actually filed letters of corporation through the state of Michigan. Now, this is something that I did not do myself. And this is going to be a common theme through these step-by-step -step, uh, or these steps that I've gone through. I try not, I try to do as little myself as possible because I'm not an expert. So I hired an attorney and he is a local guy and someone that I trusted and had used for a couple of the things previously. And it was quite simple. He literally got all the information he needed. He filed it digitally through the state of Michigan. And by the end of the day, we had my um, employee tax ID number. So there we go. Letters of corporation. Was that, I, just, uh, I mean, was that pretty expensive to hire an attorney to do that? He charged, it's like a hundred dollars. It's like nothing. So you can do it through, through legal zoom. I think you can do it yourself online. But again, I'm, I'm always worried. I'm going to make some silly mistake because I'm so ignorant on this stuff that I would rather, even if it's going to cost me twice as much. And in this case, you know, rather than $50, it cost me a hundred dollars. I would rather hire someone that knows what they're doing, going to get it done right the first time. So there's zero chance that there's going to be a delay in me launching my company. Yeah. Thanks. Yep. Uh, once I had the letters of corporation, I got my liability insurance and my workers comp. Now, this is something that I think every painting company should have. Because I use subcontractors and I don't have employees, there's an argument there that maybe I could get away without workers comp. Um, I just I just like having that blanket coverage just in case. And you know, that's what I present to all of my potential customers when I'm going out to do an estimate. They get a copy of both of those. And that's pretty simple as well. Um, that is something that you... Uh, you can just speak to any property and casualty insurance agent and they can get it done relatively quickly, uh, probably within a day or two, have you have your certificate back to you. Um, or you could check out Gusto. I don't know if you're familiar with Gusto, Brandon. Um, Gusto is basically a kind of like a payroll um, software that you can, you know, it's very, very cheap. Um, and we're using Gusto for a few other things, but I know you can get your workers comp and I think your liability coverage through Gusto as well. Nice. Uh, so that was kind of like the, all right, here, now I'm an official business. I got my letters of corporation filed. I have my my necessary insurance coverage. Um, I don't have a builder's license. In Michigan, you don't need one. Other states, I know that you do. Uh, in Michigan, you do not. Uh, I will be getting that. And that's part of my goal for this winter as we're slowing down is to actually take a week, go get the class, get my builder's license. So I have that. That And again, I don't, for, for what we need, what we do, we don't need that. But I do think it... Cert it certainly gives me a, a higher degree of credibility when I'm going out to do estimates and they can say, oh, well, Ellison Painting, Brad's got his builder's license and Joe Schmo and his beat up truck, like never even gave me his liability insurance certificate. So maybe I could justify paying a little more yeah. for a little more legitimacy, right? Um, so next up, um, one thing that that's important to me and I think should be important to everyone is I, I started to think about the branding of my company. Not only the... Um, the what it should look like as far as the logo, but also what name 
should I use? And I, I threw, threw out a couple ideas for names of my company. And um, I just settled on Ellison Painting simply because I think my last name carries some notoriety in my local area. My dad was the mayor of my hometown for 13 years. I have a lot of cousins um, and family members that live close by. So even if you don't know my dad or if you don't know me, you don't know one of my many siblings, you probably know you know, someone named Ellison. So we, that for me, it was a strategic decision. If I wanted to launch quickly, I wanted some sort of name recognition, even though my company had zero at that point. Uh, and then we brainstormed ideas for the logo. And uh, my brother came up with this really, really great idea of uh, the uh, this Phoenix logo that I'm that I love so much. So I hired a designer, gave him the idea, like, here's what I'm looking for. He threw back some, some sketches pretty quickly. And I wasn't really happy with them. And he was just dragging his feet. It was just taking a long time. He was, he had already committed to some bigger projects than, than my logo. And ultimately I said, you know what, you know, thanks for helping out. I'm just going to find someone else. And I went on Fiverr and I hired a, a designer on Fiverr, paid him like less than a hundred dollars and came up with exactly what I wanted. So, uh, that was that. So now I'm listening. The- that's, that's F I V E R R.com. It's a place that you can hire very inexpensive virtual assistants to help you with things that have designers, um, all kinds of things. I wouldn't hire, hire them for the, the client touch points or anything, no. anything really that requires a lot of skill, but for design mm-hmm. graphics, things like that, you can find good options. Yep. Uh, so they do, yeah. My designers on Fiverr also do things like my business cards, but outside of that, I don't have them do any strategy. It's just like, Hey, I need this designed quickly. Yeah. Get it back to me. Yep. Um, all right. And then I, so once I have, um, my business is real, I'm covered with insurance. I have branding and logo ideas. Next thing was a uh, website domain. So before I chose Ellison painting as the name, I did some research on that and some other companies, company names that I had to see which domain, uh, names were still available. And, um, EllisonPainting.com actually wasn't available. And there's actually two other Ellison paintings that I could find. One's in Kentucky and one's in Australia, Um, both smaller companies. And neither was willing apparently to spend the the money needed to buy EllisonPainting.com. So it was one of those things where some, some company had purchased it, not a painting company, some company that just buys website domain names. And they were selling it for like, I don't know, $1,000 or $750 or something. And uh, it was important to me that I had ellisonpainting.com. I didn't want to do ellisonpaintingmichigan.com or ellison-painting-brush.com, you know, whatever. So uh, I negotiated with the company that had it, bought it for like 500 bucks, and bingo, bango, ellisonpainting.com was mine. And so as far as like the logistical how to launch a business at that point, I thought I was ready. I had my, my minimum viable product as far as my online presence. Um, and next step was honestly to start selling even before I had subcontractors. So I guess those are the next two steps. Start selling jobs, start finding subcontractors. So you, you had a, a game plan, right? When you, you know, you kind of set up this legal framework, but I know you and Rachel, your wife strategized a lot. What was your game plan at launch? So the game plan revenue wise was to do $1 million within our first year of operation. And I based that on my experience selling painting services and running that other painting company. I thought that was a a bit of a stretch goal, but I thought it was attainable. Even starting as late as we did, we started really 
right as exterior season was starting. So I had no jobs lined up. I had no crews lined up. I knew I was going to be playing some catch up at the beginning, but I was quite confident that if I could get my marketing rolling, if I get leads rolling in, I could start selling jobs. And if I could sell jobs and I could find subcontractors. So I thought the million dollar revenue goal was, was, I thought it was realistic. Um, but more importantly than what the number was, I mean, you know, it's, it's just important to have goals. Yeah. A lot of people launch a company and they haven't written down anywhere or even verbalized or talked about, you know, what is what is the goal of this company? And it could be in revenue, it could be in number of employees, it could be, you know, I want to hand it off to my kids in 20 years. Well, if there's no goal, I feel like you're just going to be floundering and and kind of banging your head against the walls trying to find the path in the dark. So, that was the first goal. The second goal we had was in order to meet that $1 million in revenue, how many people did we need to have working for us? So the goal was by the end of the year, we have at least 15 painters uh, that are working with us essentially full-time. Um, and then the third goal is a little bit more uh, amorphous is simply to make some money, right? So yeah. if I'm going to start a company, uh, I need to be able to make some money. We didn't need to make money right away, but... If I'm going to start a company, the obvious the obvious goal is to have it be a profitable company and something that I can do as my career. So those were our three kind of goals starting. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it is very important to have goals. The actual uh, specificity of the goal is not always quite as important. But what I want to highlight here is your first goal that you said was a, was a sales goal, right? You mm -hmm. wanted to get to a million dollars within your first year. And there's a very well-known concept in, in sales business, really marketing in general, what you focus on expands. So mm -hmm. when your mind is on selling, you say, hey, I want to hit a million dollars. That's your number one goal. Well, the odds are you're going to sell more and, and ramp faster than the guy who's starting. And well, his goal is to sell and, and do this and X, Y, and Z. And But he's not laser focused on my goal is to get mm -hmm. to a million dollars within a year. Mm -hmm. Well, having been in the industry and speaking to so many smart people in our industry, I know that if you have a certain revenue level that you can extrapolate that into a profit and that if I could do a million dollars my first year, then that means I'm Rachel and I are going to make at least $150,000, which is not as much as I was making before, but certainly more than we need to, to live comfortably. So yeah, that was our goal. And you know, I got, the goal really was more than a million. And I got some pushback from um, specifically Chris Elliott, who's a friend of ours, right? <laughs> On it painting. He's like, oh, Daniel, don't, no, don't if, talk. If, if the goal is a million dollars, then it's, you know, get it, make it a million dollars. I'm like, no, but what if, what if I find out that it's my goal should have been 2 million? Shouldn't I then aim for that? He's like, no, aim for a million. Well, I don't, I didn't listen to him. You know, the, the, the bottom goal was a million and the stretch goal was whatever the, the limit is going to be, yeah. you know, that we can comfortably manage and sell. You can take so, the next six months off, man. You yeah. Never. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Compliments. Chris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it, again, it doesn't matter what the number is, you know, from Chris's perspective, maybe I should have chosen 1.5 or $2 million as the goal. Uh, but I was comfortable that 1 million was a stretch goal, but it was attainable and ideally we would fly past it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important. You know, people have this temptation to set, if you're going to set a goal, set some unrealistic goal. And if you mm -hmm. set an unrealistic goal, that's almost as harmful. It's probably more harmful than just not setting a goal. Because then you're just going to feel defeated. The reality is the goal is not going to help you because it doesn't make any sense. Set that goal that almost feels like possible, but but it's just like you said, it's a stretch goal. Like you might get there. Now, yeah, maybe you'll blow it out of the water. You're going to blow it out of the water, but it should be something that's feasible, but you are going to have to work for it. 
Yep. And I think some people actually can benefit by setting um, goals that are 100% attainable. You know, different people have different personalities or, or drives. And some people are driven simply by checking things off the list. So yeah. they may say, you know what? I want to hit the 500,000 goal. I just want, that's all, all I need to do is 500,000 my first year. And it's, they're going to get it within the first five, six months. They check it off and boom, that motivates them to set a higher goal next yep. and continue to move on. Uh, I'm a little different. I'm a little more aspirational. I want to swing for the fences right from the get go. Uh, but I think that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a goal that feels unattainable. It could be a goal that you know, you're going to get. Some yes. people wake up and they write a checklist of, for the day. The first thing you got to do, brush your teeth. They got to take a shower. They got to get dressed. They got to get to the office on time. And those four things that they know they're going to check off at the beginning of the day gets that ball rolling. So the rest of their yep. day is also uh, going to be um, uh, uh, profitable and, and yeah. get stuff done. No, it's a great point. And they're, they're almost like gamified in a way, you know, they, mm -hmm. they check things off, feel good about it. But then it also it also keeps them focused, right? Because even though someone might might know they're going to hit half a million, they can hit half a million. If they're not focused on it, they could also miss it, even if it's easily attainable, because they they actually didn't focus on it and prioritize it. Agreed. Um, so I want to I want to kind of focus on your approach now here, which is less of the the checklist and more of the swinging for the fences. Mm -hmm. And and you really you really kind of led with a sales first mentality. Let's talk about how did you balance that with fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I share that with some people that I started selling before I even had any crews to paint, they're like, what? Well, what if you couldn't find any crews? What What are you going to do? Cause you, you can't paint. Right. So what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I was for, I forced myself to figure it out. Now I was confident, you know, based on my ability to recruit crews in the past for my other company, I was confident that I was going to be able to find subcontractor crews to fulfill. And so I, I, I stepped out confidently and I started spending money in, mar in marketing. I launched that marketing before we had any firm commitments for the crews to handle the work. And, um, but I did also, I mean, I started recruitment right away. It wasn't like I was like, Hey, I'm going to start selling, sell a bunch and then start worrying about recruiting. Yeah. No, what? No, of course. And especially when you, when you start marketing, it's not like leads are going to come in, you know, you're going to get a hundred leads in your first week. Like, no, that's, that's going to be scaling. So you've got a lot of time until your lead flow is really demanding enough that you're going to be spending all your time on estimates. I thought, anyway. I thought you only use marketing right when you need the lead. Like you need like a million leads yesterday. I thought that's when you start investing in the marketing. I'm sure that's, those are the people that you talk to most often, right? They're like, Oh, Brandon, I, need, I need leads now. What do I How many do? leads do you need? I need 600 yesterday. Like, yeah. okay, cool. Right. And of, of course there are some marketing tactics that you can get leads more quickly than others, but yep. the, the lead sources that are the most valuable to you that have the highest ROI are the ones that are going to take the longest to get. So, uh, yeah. So even the, even though I was willing to spend money on the tactics that would get me leads more quickly, it was still obviously going to take time yep. to, to get that demand that, that lead flow up to the point that I was needed to spend most of my time on estimating. So I was, um, I was recruiting subs from the get-go. Um, yeah, so that's that. I just, let's start selling, I guess. Yeah, so when you when you landed your first sale, you know, got your first commitment, did you then have to go find a crew or do you have someone locked in at that point? Uh, I didn't have anyone officially locked in. I had this guy that had worked with me a few years ago that was called me, um, was very uh, pro providential, I guess, that he, he called me, he said, hey, I'm moving back from Florida. I'm going to be in town for like nine months and, um, I'm going to, I'm going to recruit some of my old painter guys. 
you know, Nick just told me that you were starting a painting company. Do you have any jobs for me? And I was like, yeah, actually the timing might, might be perfect. So he was, he was coming back in town in, in May, we launched in April. So I had a couple, two, three weeks or so that I was selling and banking jobs before he came back. But even that it's like, how many times are we told that someone's going to do something or they're going to, they commit to something. There's no guarantee. Yeah. And, and the reality is he, he kind of committed to us that he was going to have five or six painters, two crews, and they were going to be totally at our disposal. Well, the first three or four weeks, he had one guy working for us. And that one guy was doing $13,000 jobs and taking forever. Hmm. So it, we, that forced us to be like, all right, well, maybe he's not as reliable as we were hoping he's going to be. Who else can we find? And fortunately, because we've been recruiting already, we were able to fill up that pipeline of subcontractors relatively quickly. Yeah. And I think that's an important point too, when you call it a pipeline, you know, people think about a pipeline in terms of deal flow, you know, you want to have these, mm -hmm. these um, potential prospective customers in a pipeline, but you also mm -hmm. want to have potential subcontractor crews, or even if you have W2 employees, you want to have them in a pipeline. You want to constantly be, be almost marketing, advertising, you know, however you're trying to do it, whether mm -hmm. it's through referrals or whatever, the reality is you're advertising, you're marketing your positions and you want to be having a pipeline so that when that, that work grows, you're not scrambling for painters. You're not one of the many people on Facebook saying, oh, I need painters. How, how do I mm -hmm. find painters? Because you're already putting in that work up front. Right. And the Kuipers and Elliot's kind of switched my um, my my mind uh, about that. I used to think that I didn't want to have these subcontractors in like with my company unless I could actually provide them work full time. Right. Sure. I, I felt like I was doing them a disservice if I wasn't able to keep them busy full time. And they're like, no, 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 no. Listen, you're going to have you're going to have some crews that are compliant and active, meaning you have all of their insurance information. They've signed your subcontract or master agreement and they're doing work for you. You're going to have some subcontractors that you interview that are never going to be compliant. They're never going to provide you the necessary information. They will never, ever be a crew for you. But then you're going to have a big group of, of crews that are compliant and non-active. And they might be non-active for a bunch of different reasons. It might be because you don't have any work for them. It might be because they took on a big project with another contractor. Maybe they have their own work, whatever. But that is the, that's almost the most important part because your crews that are always compliant and always active, great. That's steady. You want to treat those guys very, very well, keep them happy so they stay on. But if you want to scale, you have to have those other crews that are compliant and non-active so that when you need them to be active, boom, you can add three or four crews to your work, uh, to your working pipeline. Yeah. That's oh. a great point. Yeah. Not, not every crew is going to be the same. Their availability is not going to be the same. And if mm -hmm. you try to time everything perfectly, that's just not how life works. Certainly not mm -hmm. how entrepreneurship works. No, no, sir. Almost never. Yep. So I, I want to touch base on your corporate structure. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? So when we launched and even now it's very, very simple, very small. So it's, it's simply me uh, and I handle the the marketing strategy and, and sales and estimates um, and recruiting of subs. And then I have a project manager. So the project manager is essentially responsible for everything after someone says yes to one of my estimates. They handle all the scheduling. Uh, they schedule color consultations. They schedule the actual job. They coordinate with the subcontractors as far as the, the scheduling of the start of the project. And uh, they handle all that from that point on. So once an estimate is accepted, I'm essentially hands off unless I'm needed for something. And then as you know, all of my painters are actually subcontractors. Now, the reason I'm able to keep that, uh, the corporate structure pretty lean right now is I outsource 
many, many things. I outsource my marketing. I outsource my bookkeeping. I outsource my accounting and design work. And uh, even even drip jobs, I would say, is kind of outsourcing some of my sales activities and, sure. and automation. So uh, so really, that's it. That's I, I felt confident that I could not do it by myself. I know some guys could. I didn't. I felt like I wouldn't have the bandwidth to be managing the marketing strategy, selling jobs, and scheduling jobs, being there for job kickoff. In order to, in order to project manage manage these projects the way that I thought they needed to be done at the level that I wanted Ellison Painting to operate, I had to have someone else that that was their full responsibility, and it was a very very wise decision from my perspective, uh, because that's not one of my expertise, and. The, the customer satisfaction has been just through the roof having someone there to, to be that point person once the job is uh, accepted. Yeah. And if you're, if you're out there, you know, selling and project managing and doing everything else, then you end up being spread too thin. And it's almost every, every different project that you take on, especially the big ones, it becomes like an ankle tie or, or like a weight tied to your ankle yep. and uh, your customer service, your, your fulfillment, everything just progressively gets worse. Yep. And, and I think overwhelmed. For sure. And I think that I have a higher bandwidth to take on multiple tasks of multiple varieties than some other people. But I, I knew that you're, as you just said, it would suffer. So other areas would suffer. I'm only doing everything maybe at a, at a B minus instead of an A plus if I focused really on what I needed to focus on. Yeah. Who would you kind of focus on getting, getting everything to an A plus level? And this might be kind of diving into the next thing we're going to talk about, but who would you focus on hiring first? Uh, so you mean like, as far as like a pro, I mean, for me, project manager, project manager, because, and that's because for you, you like the, the estimating, you feel really comfortable and, and solid in the sales position. Well, the more, yeah, the more generic, the more generic answer is whatever your weaknesses are, that's what you should be hiring for. Okay. Right. So I, I think I'm, I'm very strong on sales and, um, overall business management and managing marketing strategy. I am not great at organization and follow through on, on getting jobs scheduled and coordinating colors and all that. Uh, and not only am I not good at it, it's certainly not anything that I want to do. Uh, yeah. Some people, I think we mentioned this in the last uh, in the last episode we recorded, some people really thrive at that and they're not great at sales. Okay, well, then that founder needs to hire a salesperson as their first person. And that's what's going to help them to scale more quickly. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Everyone, you know, a lot of people think they need to be this master salesman. Hmm. If they're going to start a painting company, but you don't, but you do need to have one. So then mm -hmm. you need to partner or hire one. For sure. So let's talk about your struggles. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about your successes. As you know, we try to make the, this painter marketing mastermind podcast, very relatable, very mm -hmm. uh, action oriented. People can listen to it. And what I don't want is just, Hey, it's so easy. Look at me. You know, I crushed it and you should be crushing it too. Don't you feel bad? Right. So yeah. you, you've had struggles, you know, you've had advantages, but you've also had struggles. Let's, let's kind of dive into those. Sure. And we should preface this by saying, of course, I have struggles uh, professionally, personally. For me, I think I'm a naturally optimistic and driven person. And so I don't find myself drawn to focusing on the negative. And I certainly don't need to publicize the negative. Some people, when something bad happens to them, will go Facebook. online and they just complain. Yeah, they complain Facebook. about it, right? Yeah. Oh, what was me? This is what happened. You know what? I, I'm self-aware enough to know that my problems, most people don't care about. Yeah. And certainly me publicizing them on Facebook is not going to solve any of my problems. And so I tend to post positive things. And that's partly because my life is generally positive. Like I, I am 
so blessed and so happy with my life that for me to complain about anything would be so disrespectful to the life that I have and that I've been blessed with. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't have struggles. So I'm happy to share those. And I do quite often with people that ask, I would say the, um, the first struggle I had is we had, I'd found myself in this groove where I was working like 20 hours a week. I was making good money. I was able to be home with my family quite a bit. I was going to the gym, you know, six to seven days uh, a week. Times a day. Oh, days a week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and things were just felt, they just felt easy. And surprise, surprise, when you launch your business, you got to work more. And where I, where I had an admin before and a project coordinator and a quality control person and a bookkeeper and a, a partner to help handle any of the numerous issues that come up on a day-to-day basis, I didn't have hardly any of that. And so by nature, I had to hustle and I had to work more. So that was, that was the first struggle. Um, the solution to that was obviously have my wife on board. Um, so that when I'm giving up time with my family, she understands why, and she's okay with it, but also to try to automate as much as I could in, in an effort to be perceived as the most professional painting company in Michigan, I've been trying to create any processes I can that make my life easier, but also prove that we are more professionalized than anyone else around us. So um, you know, even software solutions, like I know that you've trip jobs, you mentioned Tanner Mullen earlier, uh, drip jobs has been such a great tool for us, especially at the size of business that, that we are to handle incoming lead requests and scheduling and the actual, the, the marketing educational piece, estimate delivery, the backend scheduling, invoicing, I mean, everything, it, it probably takes 15 hours off my plate or off the plate of someone that I would have to pay to do that stuff. Uh, and then even, even other solutions like, uh, open phone, open phone is, I think I mentioned it at the last, last episode too. It's, it's just a, basically a call forwarding service, but it allows me to not have to answer the phone when someone calls. So if someone calls, they can leave a voicemail or they get an automated text message back that says, Hey, are you, are you calling to schedule an estimate? Click this link and it gives them the drip jobs link. And then it goes in that automated process. So while I am working more, I figured out ways to work smarter. So I'm, instead of having to work 60 hours a week, I'm working full time, which is really 40. Yeah. So it's not even like a crazy amount of hours. It's what most people are used to working. It's more than I'm used to working or have been used to working, but it's you've been on vacation. Yeah, I've been on vacation for a few years. So I had to work more. But all this stuff, I mean, the biggest, the biggest struggle it created was family tensions. And, you know, I love my wife so much and I know I, I brag about her. Uh, but you know, we had our moments this summer where she she gave up the summer with with the kids. Um, and it was the last summer my daughter was going to have before she started kindergarten. And she gave up those from April through October to work with me full-time. And that was a big sacrifice for her. That's we had, we had consciously made this decision a few years ago that she, she was going to be a stay at home mom. That was really important to her. And she gave that up. And there was a lot of tensions. There were a lot of conversations over the summer where she's stressed out. She's sad that she's missing this and this and that. And it's like, okay, well, listen, if you need to quit, then quit. We'll, let's find you a replacement. It's as valuable as, as it is having you working with me because my wife is so smart and capable. It caused tensions. And so it would have been worth it to me to then hire someone else to take over for her so she could just relax. Would have been a financial sacrifice, but 
um, a sacrifice that would have been good for the family. Um, ultimately, she wanted to tough it out, and she did. And I'm glad she did. It gave us a few more months of not having to pay someone. And even though we had childcare costs, uh, it it was the right decision, I think, for the business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs in general, balancing work and family, especially with young kids. It's hard because you're mm-hmm. you're trying to work. You're trying to create that legacy. You're trying to build that business and, and provide financial security for your family and hopefully, you know, potentially something to pass off if you want to. Um, but at the same time, you're also sacrificing time while mm-hmm. you're doing it. So you're kind of it's a pro and a con to your family. And it's a real big con if it actually doesn't pay off. So I think what you've said mm-hmm. about systematizing automating, using whatever softwares you can, as soon as you can, hiring, the, you know, putting the right people in the right seats where you're weak, as soon as you can get that stuff off your plate, the, the sooner the better. 100%. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's a long-term view. It's, yeah, I'm sacrificing time now when my kids are two and five, but when my kids are uh, five and eight, and now they're playing sports and the, the game start or the practice start at three thirty or four o'clock in the afternoon. Hopefully by that point, I will have worked myself out of the, the estimating and kind of day-to-day job. And I'll, I'll have my time back during those other formulative years where I can be more actively involved. Yeah. That's great, man. Yep. Um, okay. And then how about this, this idea that, you know, you, you had your, you know, you said your father was, was the mayor mm-hmm. in your city. Um, that's a bit unique. And then you have a big family, but you're also, I want to get into the population of your service area because you're saying that and people are going to just assume everybody in the world knows you. And, and I know that that's not true. And I also want to get into what's, what challenges maybe you faced starting a company that didn't have any reputation. Mm -hmm. So the, the population, so we're in Metro Detroit. If you look at Metro Detroit, which is kind of a tri-county area, there's about 4.4 million people that live here. Now, the, I would say I would I argue all the time that the reputation that Detroit has is being kind of a crap hole. It's not exactly true, uh, but it is true that there are some lower income areas around here. There's also some way higher income areas that people probably would never guess existed. So there's 4.4 million people. That doesn't mean that that's 4.4 million possible customers. If you whittle it down to where we focus, we focus on Oakland County, which is uh, closer to about 1.3 million people in population. And then within Oakland County, there's certainly a lot of areas that we don't focus our marketing efforts on that are lower income and are just we don't think are going to be a great return for us. So I would say we're probably at about 500,000 for the population in the areas in which we actively spend money for marketing. Um, one of the reasons why I was so drawn to buy someone else's company originally was this idea that you know, company that's been around for almost 40 years and has thousand reviews on Angie's list. And, you know, there's some sort of reputation. That's really what I was trying to buy was that, that name, that, that reputation. And I thought it was going to be a big stumbling block to start from scratch. Now we did, we did choose the name specifically. We, we chose certain ge- geographical areas that we were going to target first for marketing because of my last name. It's a, it's called a beachhead strategy for those that don't know, you choose kind of one very specific geographical area or a target demographic and you just hit it as hard as you can. We did that in order to launch uh, when we, when we when, the way we did. And that, that worked. Uh, but we still didn't have a reputation online. If people Googled us, we didn't really exist. Maybe they stumbled upon our website uh, before we had really any traction on SEO. But honestly, Brandon, what I found is 
you don't need to have a previous reputation. You need to just spend money strategically to market or get your marketing message out there strategically and then follow through and do a good job. And if I, all I needed to do was get in front of people and it didn't matter if I was estimating against companies that have been around for 35 or 40 years, if they met me and if they saw my approach and how Ellison Painting operated, I don't think it mattered how long we've been in business. Some people did ask and uh, they say, well, how long you been in business? And in May, you know how I answered that question? It's like, well, honestly, I've been in the industry for about five years, but I just launched Ellison Painting last month. The good news is the painters that are working with me have been in the industry far longer than me. And we've already established this super professionalized system that is just wowing our customers already. And that was it. That's all they needed to hear. You know, they, they didn't, they don't need me to have 40 years of painting experience. They don't, apparently they don't need me to have any painting experience. <laughs> they just want to feel comfortable and trust that I'm going to be able to do what I say I'm going to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, it's about that trust factor when they're asking you questions like that about your experience or, or really anything related to that. They essentially just want to trust that you're going to do a good job. And you know what you're doing. Right. So the, the kind of um, novice, I guess, fear approach would be, oh no, I don't have all these years or decades or whatever of experience. So they're not going to choose me. That's not what the question is about. The question is, can you do the job? Am I sure that you can do the job, right? So when you leaned on the assets of your subcontractors, of those painters, hey, let me assure you, they've been doing this forever, mm-hmm. covered. And then you also, right, turning a weakness into a strength, said, hey, we, we have a super, super great way of, of ensuring your satisfaction, right? You guys have a streamlined sales process. So if you're newer to the industry and you're worried about these companies that have been around for decades, you know, family legacies, whatever, you can basically position it as, hey, here's what's wrong with the painting industry and here's mm-hmm. how we fixed it, right? That's what Absolutely. we've done at Painter Marketing Pros. People don't like marketers. They're dirty marketers, right? So mm-hmm. we came in and we fixed it. And that's what you position your painting company to do. For sure. And I could have, I could have simply lied. They're not going to go back and check to see when I filed my letters of corporation, right? Short, short-term win, but long-term right. bad approach. Yeah, why? Well, I'd, rather, I'd rather be honest and as you yeah. mentioned, turn it into a positive. Yeah, no, I love it, man. And people, yep. you know, don't get scared, right? That's ultimately sure. what you're conveying here. You sure. didn't, you, you felt, you knew that you're going to produce a good result. You weren't afraid. You you stood by confidently. And a lot of it's also how you answered. If you're really sheepish, like, oh, well, you know, actually we're kind of new. No, you said, hey, you know what? We're actually new, but guess what? We're going to do a great job because the painters have been doing it forever. Right, right. And I will touch on one more struggle I had. Uh, I, I get asked a lot about how to find reliable subcontractors and I don't want it to sound like this is the easiest thing in the world for me. And I just have like subcontractors raining down on me day to day. Subcontractor treat. <laughs> right. Uh, the reality is if I, if I talk to 10 possible subcontractors, uh, I will schedule a time to meet with eight of them. And out of the eight that I schedule to meet with, half of them aren't going to show up and I'm never going to hear from them ever again. That leaves me with four. Of the four that show up, one of them is not going to have their insurance or workers comp, even though they said they did, and they're not going to spend the money to get us. That leaves me with three uh, of the three. One of them is going to say, ah, this guy's just like every other contractor I've ever met. Even though he says he operates differently, he doesn't. That leaves me with two. And of the two, I will try them both out. One's going to flame out for some reason. And if I have a 10% success rate when interviewing subcontractors, I'm very, very happy with that. Right. And then once I get that one subcontractor, as I've mentioned time and time and time again, it's making sure that they feel respected and honored and compensated. And so they'll stick around, but it's, it's a never ending battle. It's not like you can, 
you just, you, you want, okay, I need, I need 30 painters. I need six crews. Then you find the six crews and then you're done. It's a, that's a constant battle of finding subcontractors, recruiting, interviewing, testing them out so that you can grow with the crews that will be able to manage to your expectations. Right. Yeah. And that's why you have to have that pipeline constantly running. Right. I, I want to circle back to something you said too. That's really important. You know, you, you're Metro Detroit, right? <clears throat> 4.4 million people. One of the mistakes we see painting companies make is they think they need to target everybody mm-hmm. or if they, if they get more narrow, Oh no, my business won't be as big. The reality is you don't have the resources and it doesn't even make sense to target everybody. So you went from 4.4 to 500 K and you also actually started with even less than that. And, and it, even if you don't have a brand name, you can still choose neighborhoods to strategically start. Use your resource when you're a smaller company, you have to use your resources really purposefully. Mm-hmm. For sure. And be willing to admit that a certain tactic that you're in love with is not working and stop yeah. spending money on it. You need to be tracking that data constantly. Track the ROI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, so those were those were a lot of the things that you found difficult, right? You had to work more because you had mm-hmm. to come out of retirement, had to bring Brad mm-hmm. out of retirement. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will say I will say my fitness level has suffered a bit. Uh, yeah, often misses you. Those six, those six daily trips is just it's just not the same without you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the family tensions, you know, that's a real thing. I, mm-hmm. I live with that. I understand that. Um, the reputational reputation piece. At the end of the day, I do want to kind of touch on it. People do not care about your brand as much as you care about your brand. Right. Sure. You, you want to present a good brand, but the reality is what they want is, is a paint, a paint project done well that, that they know is going to be taken care of. That's what they want. Yep. If you convey that, the fact that they don't all know you already is, is okay. Um, and then finding the reliable crews, right. And mm-hmm. basically aiming for a 10% success rate, which means, and then sometimes you're going to lose that one out of 10, they, they might just, you lose them eventually. And so you have to keep those wheels turning. For sure. Um, so those are all your struggles. Let's talk about some of the advantages you had going into mm-hmm. this. Yep. I would say the the biggest advantage I had was my experience. It wasn't like I was coming out of college or leaving another industry and trying to start a painting company from scratch. Uh, I I had five years experience running a pretty decent sized painting business. I had made mistakes before. I'd done it before. I had scaled before. I I, I could see very clearly see the end goal uh, and where I could be. You know, one, three, five years down the road. So. My experience, I'm sure, was is a huge advantage. But most people, when they're starting a painting company, uh, or if they're thinking about maybe scaling a painting company that they've already owned, then you have experience too. We have different types of experience, but you have experience within the industry. You know how to talk about painting. You should know how to sell jobs. You should know how to manage projects. Most people should have um, similar type experience that I had, right? Um. I did have the advantage of having free labor. So as I mentioned, I talked my wife into working with me for the first six months and we both committed to not really taking any money until we needed to. Yeah. So we needed most- to get your five-year-old out there door hanging. So you yeah. Need- right. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I did use, I do use my kids in my marketing. They're yeah. my family pictures on every single piece that we put out. You know, um, you can actually do not to get too far. So you can actually do a tax, uh, like a write-off for that. So yeah, I know. That, scound- that scoundrel in Minneapolis has already told me about the name and likeness it's a, it's thing. A weird how he, thing. It's yeah, a how weird he pays thing, his man. kids. Yeah. Yeah. You pay your kids. Some weird thing. But yeah, keep on. Yep. Um, so the free labor, it, when I say it was free, I mean, we gave up our time, of course. Um, and we were willing to do that because we had the cash reserves 
to, to survive it. But she was also willing to give up her, her summer, give up those six months because she knew it was an investment. And the, the money that there, the time that she put in was not only saving us the money from paying someone else, but also it really allowed us to ramp up as quickly as we did. So she, she knew it was an investment. Um, that, all ties into the third advantage, which is the cash reserves. Now, I would say there was an advantage, but it's not like someone gave us $200,000. We lived very, very smartly and wisely leading up to this. Um, we don't live being, we, we live well below our means. Um, you know, we live in a really nice neighborhood and we live in a cool house and we drive nice cars, but we, we do that um, as a result of us making wise financial decisions and not wasting money on other areas, right? So it was an advantage, but it's something that everyone should be able to accomplish. And as I mentioned in my last episode, Brandon, we had that that big cash reserve and it turned out we didn't need it. We, you know, we yeah. really needed 20,000 or so. And I want to, I also want to interject one second, Brad, like the cash reserve, it was helpful. It was kind of a, I guess it was almost a security blanket for you. You used very, you used a 10th of it. You used very little of it, mm. but it, it didn't, it's not why you succeeded, right? All this other stuff, it, it's why you felt more comfortable going for it but it's not why you succeed. No, no, it's certainly not why I succeeded. And I, I think that someone that is already in the industry that's trying to scale that maybe can scrounge up or save 20 grand to, to scale, they should have the confidence that that $20,000 is going to be well spent in scaling the business. And it's, it's like the greatest investment you can make. If you take $20,000 and put it into the stock market, even if you take out the last year or so where the stock market has been absolute trash, uh, maybe you get a 12% return at the end of the year. Well, yep. what is my $20,000 investment gotten like 10,000% return? I'm not good at math. I don't know, but yeah. uh, you're never, you're not going to have a, a better chance at getting a sweet return on that investment than investing it back in your business. Yeah, no, it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the ROI. Yeah. Uh, and then I think you had in the last episode, you had mentioned one other um, networking advantage. I believe. Yeah. So apart from like my wife, my, I would say my biggest advantage is the, the friends that I've made within the industry. Uh, some of my closest friends in the industry who kind of helped provide a roadmap to what I should or shouldn't be doing as I launched. Um, and that those friends continue to pay dividends. Now we, um, I had formed a, uh, a peer advisory board with some colleagues. Uh, it's not a board of directors or anything like that, but it, it was important to me to have a consistent consistent schedule where I can talk to people that I thought were wise that ha that are running successful businesses like mine can we can we meet you know once a month and really hold each other accountable for our business and uh, that's that's we started that a few weeks or a few months ago um, with Kuipers Matt and Maggie with Shane Vork Vork Brothers out in Grand Rapids so another Michigan company actually and then Ryan Davis of um, Cardinal Concrete Coatings and, and Service Legend out in Phoenix and uh, and that's been really helpful they is they helped me to know what I should do and they've helped me to know what I shouldn't do and we were I was seriously considering launching in Cleveland this next year and those those three families said it's too early man don't do it yeah focus on what you're doing now and so it's as helpful as what I should do, knowing what I shouldn't do has also been super valuable. Hard to swallow, much yeah. more hard to swallow, but shiny oh. object syndrome. You got it, man. It's you tough. Got it. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, what can what can people do who are listening who who maybe don't feel that they have those same close connections or or friendships with people who are doing really well already? 
I don't think you need the close friendships. There are so many resources out there, like in people, mm-hmm. the, the people that I count as friends, uh, you know, the Kuipers, the um, Nick Slavic, Jason Paris, th- these Chris Elliott, these guys that are um, these families and these, these contractors that are so smart, they're offering their time and their resources for free online right. anyway. Right. Yeah. It's not like you got to pay to talk to Nick Slavic. If you if you respond to one of Nick's posts saying, Hey, can I get your SOPs? Can I get your marketing strategy? Yeah, yeah. Shoot me an email, eh? Shoot me an email, Nick at nickslavic.com. And, and it I'll- comes through the messenger sure. just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. yeah. And and within within a day, he will have sent you his resources for free. So yeah. yes, it is nice that I can pick up the phone and call Nick and and talk to him, but he is as available to anyone else as am I, as is Jason and, and everyone else I've mentioned on these podcasts, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the painting contractors, Facebook group, the, um, or your Facebook group, the painter marketing pros forum group. All you got to do is get on there and ask questions and people will give you honest, constructive feedback and answers, and they're not going to charge you any money for it. Yep. I, you know, what's, what's been a lot of fun for me is since I started doing these podcasts with you and some others, uh, and managing that that painting contractors Facebook group, I get asked all the time, "Hey, you know, can I pick your brain on something?" Sure. So at least once a week, I'm spending 45 minutes on the phone with someone from around the country, just asking me questions about how to find subcontractors, what type of marketing strategy, uh, you know, what how how do you sell? And I take the time and do it. And I do it because one, I think that as leaders, we are we are called to give back, but also what kind of guy would I be if I had taken all this free knowledge and resources from other people and then not responded in kind for other people that are just a step behind me. Right. Um, the, the goal of the PCA and the goal of our friends, Brandon is, uh, to elevate the industry. And instead of trying to elevate myself and pushing others down, I would rather while I'm elevating myself, reaching back and help the next guy up who can then help the next guy up. And we can, we can elevate the industry as a whole, rather than just have these, you know, a few companies that are doing it right. We could all, we could all be doing it yeah. right and doing great. hundred percent. The, uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? hundred mm-hmm. percent. So it sounds like everything went perfectly for you. You didn't <laughs> need to pivot. It was all smooth. Or was there, was there some pivoting? Did you need to change some things? There's always pivoting. And if you're not pivoting, then you're probably not growing as quickly as you could. Uh, but, but there is something to say here. You know, sometimes things don't have to be catastrophic. Things don't have to actually fail in order for you to pivot. Uh, I mean, I mentioned your marketing, right? If you're if you're spending a bunch of money on Google marketing and you're spending a bunch of money on social media marketing and your social media marketing is getting you a sweet ROI and your, your pay-per-click campaigns are not doing anything for you right now and you have limited funds, what I would say is shift all your marketing dollars to what's working right now. You can always reevaluate and come back later. And so we, you know, I track that data and I've, I've started with, with some marketing strategies and pivoted to others and those were successful for a period. And then I pivoted to others. I'm constantly trying new things to, to figure out what can get me the best ROI and the most consistent lead flow. So while none of my marketing efforts, I would say have been, you know, quote unquote failures, uh, there are some that are clearly more profitable and more successful than others. And so I pivot my marketing strategy and my dollars towards what's working best. Um, along those same lines, with all the recruiting that we've done with subcontractors, we've had crews in and we've had crews out. 
the, you know, the first uh, three crews, I think that we started with are, are not taking work from us anymore. Um, I kind of made that sound bad. <laughs> like, it, I, it's not because of anything we did. I don't they, think they but, said, screw you guys. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. right. No, it's, you know, they, they got busy with, with their own work and, yeah. um, they saw their opportunities and I, we certainly weren't going to begrudge them that. Uh, but what, if you look at Ellison painting in May and the May and June, the crews we had working compared to right now, there's, there's not a whole lot of overlap. So crews are in and out, which is why that my constant recruitment of subcontractors is so valuable and important. Uh, you gotta have, it's like that, uh, the new England Patriots, you know, uh, next man up, right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta have the the next crew ready to go so that if something happens and you lose one crew, you got someone else to take their place. So, you know, we, when you're early, when you're early on in your launch, I think that you're going to be more permissive of who you will accept as one of your subcontractors. And that's just the nature of that. You got to take more risks and a crew that you say, eh, kind of 50, 50 on them. Now I wouldn't take my chance on a 50, 50 crew. Even, you know, what am I seven months in? Even now I wouldn't take my chance on a 50, 50 crew. But when I started, it's like, yo, I got all these jobs lined up. I have my wife as my project manager. So she's at least going to be catching things. If they go awry early, I have to take the chance. And and some of those crews really paid off and really stepped up and now they're A players and some of those crews fell off. You can't be super picky when you launch. Um, at yeah. least I at least I couldn't and and still stay ethical. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. For sure. For sure. And then the the last the last and biggest pivot is um we transitioned my wife out of the business. And that was a big pivot. And that was really hard. Um it was really hard for me. I would say it's, it was bad for our business, but really good for our relationship. And my my relationship with my wife is far more important than Ellison painting. So it was really healthy transition for her. I she asked if she came on board if I would commit, you know, at the six month mark that she's done, and I wouldn't try to talk her into staying. And no I said, scope creep. Right, right. And uh, I committed. Yes, yeah, a hundred percent. You have my word that I will not try to get you to stay. And so we, uh, leading up to that six month mark, we started recruiting and found someone to replace her. And that was, that was a big pivot and it's been successful so far. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, I, I launched a company knowing that my right-hand man is going to be changing in six months. Yeah. Kind of that, like, probably lit even more of a, a fire under you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That means we had to have the systems built within six months because I need to be able to hand it off to someone else. Yeah. And that, that's kind of another lesson too. Even if you have someone who's handling all this, juggling all these balls for you, you never know what's going to happen. If somebody's going to leave, you know, Nick calls it the, he's usually referring to the owner, but the Turkey, Turkey truck tests or whatever, if you get hit by a Turkey, I don't even know what a, what a Turkey truck is. <laughs> really don't have those here, but if you get hit by this proverbial Turkey truck, then uh, is your business going to be all right? Right. Everyone, any single person should be able to get hit by this truck and everything should be able to run. Right. And really anyone we hire, it's not going to be with us forever. No way. I mean, if, you, if you're hiring the caliber of people that you want to stay forever, they're, they won't stay forever. There's going to be better, bigger and better things maybe for them down the line, whether it be running their own company or, you know, using the experience they had with painter marketing pros or Ellison painting to, to, to get a, a, a bigger, higher paying job in a different industry, who knows? Yeah. Um, but the, the type of people that I want to recruit and hire are probably going to be the types of people that, um, I'm, I'm catching them before they've really hit their full value, right? And the goal, of course, I would love for them to stay forever. Um, but when you hire a sales guy, when you hire a project manager, 
let's teach them your teach them your methods. Try to get them to 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 buy in. Uh, give them your knowledge and pour into them so that they can grow personally and professionally, and hope they'll stay along stay along for the ride. Um, but most people will not, right? Yeah, I mean the fear is is uh, oh if if I invest into my people they might leave me, right? But if you don't invest into your people, do you even want them with you? That kind <laughs> of person. If you don't, yeah, if you don't invest in your people, they will definitely leave you. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and if they if they stay with you, then it means that they're definitely not an A player, right? Because they're okay with that. I want to yeah, circle yeah. back to one more thing, Brad, before you finish, because it it was a really important point that you made from a sales and marketing perspective. And I think it could mm-hmm. be easily overmissed. So you talked about this builder's license, right? And how you you don't need to have it, but it, it's almost like this wow effect, right? Because you you already have, well, you already are doubled up essentially on your workman's comp because you have the subcontractors, you ensure that they have it, then you have it. So mm-hmm. now you come in with that and then now you're going to take your builder's license and, and layer that on top. So you're providing so much authority, so much trust, so much security to the homeowner. Like, hey, one, two, three. So when chucking a truck or you know whoever else rolls up, and they're not producing these documents. It's just, it's night and day. Yeah. Well, and that's the only reason why I would get it. You know, I'm not going to be out building things, right? I don't know. Yeah. But having a builder's license will give me a certain amount of authority. But there's also things we can do to to get authority that won't help. I mean, I have an actual business degree, Brandon. I went to college. I have a bachelor's yeah. degree. And most most people that run painting companies probably don't. Um, actually, I, I saw recently, Nick Slavic's got his uh, degree in like accounting or something. Yeah. right or business administration with a minor in accounting or something he never talks about that because yeah. he he knows that that's not going to help his cloud it's not going to help his authority which is why i never mention you know publicly or to yeah. my customers that oh yeah i have a it master's. honestly could hurt it honestly could hurt you because the exactly. homeowner will then get suspicious oh well he's running some slick business he's going to take my money what they care about is you're you're going to take care of them they don't care that you're a slick businessman that's going to actually hurt you exactly and in some situations it will help and i certainly will mention you know oh yeah i graduated from oakland university if i see that yeah. they're an ou alum or that's you know nice. you know if they if they work in business administration sometimes it will cuz they some people want to want to work with a company that has the leadership it's like yeah. what they consider you know educated people uh, so i will use it to my advantage but it's not something that i would publicize like i would a builder's license Sure. And yeah, yeah, it's approaching from an empathetic standpoint. Like what do what do they value and how can I how can I position it differently? And the reason I wanted to bring up the builder's license was not because everyone should go out and have one, whether you need it or not, but how can you position your painting company? What can you do differently? How can you convey more trust or, or security? Can you offer a bigger workmanship warranty? Can you give your direct cell phone number? What can you do that's different from the next guy who's going to walk into their house and give them an estimate that's going to make you pay, that's going to make them pay you more money than the next guy and still hire you. Right. Yeah. Brad, this has been incredible. As always, yeah. I, I, I love our conversations. Is there anything else that you want to wrap up um, before we wrap up the second episode of the series? Yeah, I've got a bone to pick real quick. So Jason Paris acts like he's the smartest guy in the room. He's so successful. He's so smart, but he asked the dumbest question on your forum. <laughs> Does, does Brad, when Brad sits in an office chair, do his feet touch the ground or are they just swingy, swingy style? I'm five foot seven. Obviously my feet are swinging below the desk right now. Okay. Uh, My feet can't touch the ground. Jason was smart. He would know that I strategically raise the chair as high as I can so that I'm more eye level with the people I'm speaking to, which then makes my feet swingy, swingy. 
That's a, that's a great point. It was something, it was a topic. A lot of people in the Facebook group are interested. I'm glad you addressed that. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Brad, thanks, man. Thanks for your time today. All right, buddy. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. If you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this podcast and how you can use them to grow your painting business, visit paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast for free training, as well as the ability to schedule a personalized strategy session for your painting company. Again, that URL is paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast. Hey there, painting company owners. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Give us your feedback. Let us know how we did. And also, if you're interested in taking your painting business to the next level, make sure you visit the Painter Marketing Pros website at paintermarketingpros.com to learn more about our services. You can also reach out to me directly by emailing me at brandon at paintermarketingpros.com and I can give you personalized advice on growing your painting business. Until next time, keep growing. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.